Let's talk a little bit about uh, the concept. I mean, because I think this needs to be solidified a little bit. But when we talk about something called British Muslim Civil Society, it's an, it's an extremely catchy, it's a very interesting, once again, I would say concept. And the report that was launched in Parliament uh, a, few, a few weeks back uh, makes, a, makes really fascinating findings. I mean, obviously, this comes probably in parallel, I wouldn't say on the back of, but in parallel with the announcement of certain stats from the census of 2021, um, which shows that uh, the Muslim community in the UK is now constitutes around 6.5%. Um, and also speaks of the various facets of that particular community in terms of age, in terms of professional, uh, pro professional engagement, in, in terms of you know, various other aspects. But if I was to go back to that initial definition, a concept, do you really read into this, your research over, over many years, that it goes beyond the concept, that it is some, some, some element of reality in this? So, um, I mean... In many respects, and it's wonderful to have Neil in the studio because Neil is, in, uh, you know, one of the main commissioners for the Missing Muslims report. This is something which is spoken of uh, throughout that report. Um, that report's actually more, far more extensive than this one, um, and so you know, there is a, a tradition of reflecting about the situation of the Muslim community in this country, and I think we very deliberately use that catchy phrase, as you put it, the British Muslim Civil Society Report, because we have an aspiration to make this an ongoing conversation. Um, it's called the British Muslim Civil Society Report of 2023. Hopefully there will be further ones in the future, which allows for an ongoing conversation on issues that, you know, Muslims don't tend to think of their own communities in terms of civil society. That's a, you know, third sector specialist term almost that we um, use in um, thinking about policy, we use in thinking about public discourse and public debates and the charity sector more generally. And Muslims, I think, as a relatively young community in this country, um, still many of us um, you know, might have been born outside the country. I, I happen to have been born in this country. Um, and in that sort of situation, we're not completely used to the vocabularies that might be used um, by uh, the policy circles, by the government, by the the third sector as a whole. And so this was a deliberate attempt to carve out a space for Muslims. And I think it does exist, to answer your question somewhat directly, there is a Muslim charity sector that's very vibrant that people have been talking about for years. Um, one of the quotes I have from David Cameron in a Ramadan address from about a decade ago is saying that the Muslims, Muslims are the most generous community in this country. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, correct. Now, the, the, I mean, I, I totally get that, but if I was, and I'm of, if I may, Osama, an older generation, I arrived very in this young. country as, as, a, as a very, very young boy um, in the early 70s. And um, if I was to be asked up until recently about a British Muslim civil society, I would mention two sectors. I would mention uh, the mosques and Islamic centers and probably the charity sector. And the charity sector essentially for donating towards causes like Palestine or like Kashmir or like uh, Iraq disasters. or uh, the such. Um, so in a way, also a charity sector that doesn't necessarily feed into the, the British Muslim society itself or community itself. But uh, clearly from reading the executive summary of, of the report, um, this is a, a very, very simplified version of, of the reality. Yeah, I was just going to congratulate you on the report because it uh, follows on effectively from the Missing Muslims report that Citizens UK produced and uh, started in 2015 and 2017, also focused on civil society. So I don't see it as a concept. I see it as a struggle. The most important sector of society is civil society. It's people. As a non-Muslim, I hope not to blunder on uh, make mistakes, but the Umar is it's significant. It's a sort of Muslim civil society, the concept of Umar, isn't it? Because it excludes government. The point is, we tend to think that uh, everything has to happen by government, and the papers do, and, and what's Rishi Sunak doing now, that sort right. of thing. Whereas uh, I believe, and citizens believed, and Islam believes that it's the people, it's the organized people that matter. 
they are ignored or we are just uh, viewers of what's going on on because it's increasingly with celebrities and so on we just watch people do things whereas we are citizens in reality politically we can make things happen if we organize well uh, and i think the report particularly is very good on statistics as you say the muslim community is growing in muscle it's youthful and hopefully it will take a lead and not be subservient to government, not be subservient to the media. The media is very important, but it's not the main thing, uh, which is why the statistics are good and encouraging. But also it is, as the other reports, I've got the MCB's report that came out in 2019 or 20, I think it was, which more or less, they all say the same thing. We're doing well, but there are hurdles that we have to cross. These aren't, well, some of them are hurdles with civil society where people are nervous, don't think they've got a role to play, don't vote, don't move out of their area effectively. So that's a big hurdle. Is it, I mean, I, I, one of the questions that came to mind, as soon as I actually heard of the, uh, the release of the report in Parliament, I thought to myself, we're living in um, a secular society and yet we're defining or identifying a faith group within this, this society, you know, and calling it a civil society in itself. Uh, is that not some sort of anom anomaly? Is that uh, something that we're sort of clutching from thin air and in reality has very little That's roots? a very deliberate choice that we made. I thought, um, I thought in, that in, might be. In writing about this. And yeah. one of the points that uh, if I am able to find the sort of relevant quote. Um, this is on page 21 of the report. While it is understandable in the light of broader trends towards secularization that major institutions have increasingly tended to view religion as marginal, the unqualified adoption of such a perspective is liable to marginalize Britain's Muslim, uh, growing Muslim minority. We live in a, in a sort of plural, a pluralistic society. And it's true that the dominant trends are secular. Um, the census data indicates that actually the growing the fastest growing sort of religious trend is irreligion or um, a lack of belief in God. There's been a precipitate drop, a drop within uh, Christianity in this country. So it's now a minority religion in the UK, despite, you know, are, are technically having a head of state who is also the head of the church. Um, but uh, what's climbed the most uh, dramatically is non-religion yet Muslims are steadily growing and they're a very sizable minority they're very uh, active and vibrant in uh, their charitable activities in the third sector um, and so we need to recognize actually um, we should be inclusive to all of these different diverse sort of constituencies in our communities we should build bridges work with people uh, of all faiths and none uh, to be able to realize a more harmonious civil society, more cohesive civil society, and a better Britain for the future. Um, I mean, when we talk about a civil society in general terms, uh, it's one of the things that I used to teach when back back in uh, you know in, in the day when I was teaching. Um, there are several facets of civil society, including trade unions, including. Does that apply here? I mean, um, when I speak of civil society in this particular report, um, Muslims. I'm looking at where Muslims are quite active. So you mentioned earlier the mosque um, as a major center and mosques as institutions are perhaps our largest sort of um, group of charities in this country. There are more than 2000 uh, mosques in this country, but um, civil uh, trade unions um, or uh, other sorts of uh, organizations, particularly within the labor force, um, I think are Muslims are still not very present in those uh, contexts. And I think, um, you know, there is a lot of space for growth. Give me an example of, 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 a, of a section of society where, where they're lacking to, still. Where they're lacking. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I would say that um, one of the areas that I highlight is within the uh, sort of grassroots media infrastructure. So this is an instance where Hewar as a channel that actually originally started as an Arabic channel, is branching out into an English um, uh, sort of audience, partly because there's actually a lack. We all feel it. Um, but I think, um, and this might not be pleasing to a lot of, uh, you know, our existing media institutions because they're, they're quite uh, at an early stage of their development. But I'm somewhat critical about the, uh, the lack of infrastructure in those arenas. Um, in other areas, I mean, in international development, we're world leaders. I mean, we've, we set up 
organizations like Islamic Relief because of that sort of charitable ethos and the recognition that we're living in a global village and in the advanced world, we have the opportunity to serve. But um, now there's been a shift where increasingly um, sort of Muslim civil society organizations are recognizing actually, and, and I think actually the Missing Muslims Report has contributed to that sort of a, a shift in in the conversation. There are sufficient problems here for us to direct our um, sort of charitable energies, our um, civil society activism. Uh, Neil, when, I mean, the Missing Muslims Report is quite a fascinating, again, we're talking about the title here, it's, it's extremely fascinating. Tell us a little about it. We came up with the title, that wasn't the original title, it was the Commission on Islam Participation and Public Life. It was partly um, driven by Dr. Bari, uh, Dr. Muhammad Abdul Bari, uh, because he was um, concerned, and he was very active in, in Citizens UK, concerned that um, up till about up until 9-11, to the extent, the Muslim community was doing pretty well, was um, comfortable with itself and was um, participating and so on. But the, there was a conscious drop of participation, partly voting, um, taking on uh, responsibilities that weren't particularly Muslim. That was what people did do. Uh, and it was as, as if the community had been shocked by, and of course the state was shocked by, terrorism, 9-11, 7-7. You could almost track it to those terrible events that took place that led to a reduction in participation um, by the Muslim community and a nervousness about participating. And I quite understand it. Uh, clearly, if any other community was pilloried to the extent that the Muslim community was pilloried after the terrorist attacks and blamed and everything. It's a sort of natural thing to say, we've tried, we've tried, we've done everything, but basically nobody takes us seriously. We can't get jobs. Uh, there's massive evidence, the difficulty that anybody with an Arabic name has to get a job. And that increased substantially after the terrorist attacks. Sort of understandable, but basically we've got to grow up. It wasn't the British Muslims who did that. It was one or two isolated individuals. It's always individuals that mess up, which is why <clears throat> the report was basically focusing on why are people not participating as they so, used to. So missing Muslims is not about Muslims being missing. It's about Muslims not taking up their in rightful position in public life. That's that's essentially. Okay. I mean, it's it's quite fascinating. I have to say that in recent years, we've seen more and more Research and studies go into the makeup, uh, the role, the contribution, as well as obviously the challenges and hurdles and problems that arise from this, once again, I'm going to use that, this term, the concept of the Muslim community. Obviously, there's a question of why is that? Why is that all of a sudden? Is it because uh, they, are, they seem to be, from one sense to another, growing in terms of size and number? But is it also to do with their capacity and the influence. I mean, I, I just wanted to sort of highlight that the Missing Muslims Report and Dr. Abdul Bari is one of the pioneers in the civil society space uh, within this community and one of my own mentors and actually um, a mentor of a lot of people I know within the Muslim civil society space. Um, I mean, he's one of the people who's actually thought about this in that sort of way, that when we think about this concept, um, you know, we need to engage of civil society, of Muslim communal activism within Britain uh, in a way that thinks about serving uh, Britain's Muslims. Which, which but brings Brit about another society. question regarding when you mentioned, you know, the charity, uh, charity sector. I mean, how much of the, the millions and millions and millions being gathered every single year go to serve the, the Muslim community in Britain directly? I mean, that's that's another question, but it I is. think it's interesting. It, it, it's uh, And I think the data is a bit difficult to uh, find that. I mean, um, you know, I, among the interviews I conducted was with the largest charity in the UK, Muslim charity in the UK, Islamic Relief. Um, they uh, gather funds from around the world. So, but it all comes through their UK office. And so they, I think that most recent income was something like 183 million. And when I asked them, how much do you have designated or dedicated to British um, sort of concerns? I think it, uh, I mean, I'm, I don't have my notes in front of me, so I, please don't quote me on this necessarily, but I'm quoting myself on live television. Um, it, it was two to three million. So so it is a minuscule amount. Now, I think, I mean, there are various reasons for this. One is that um, 
you know, they, their raison d'etre was originally an international uh, charitable institution that's working for relief efforts in the uh, in other parts of the world. But um, the UK has seen um, sort of precipitate uh, increases in um, sort of poverty, and uh, the UN actually intervened um, a couple of years ago about our situation. Um, you know, some uh, commentators describe the the UK as a poor country with some very rich people. And so in that sort of situation, I think this is naturally a concern for Muslims, even though Muslims are actually one of the um, census data points that was positive coming out of um, this year, uh, the 2021 census, um, was that the levels of poverty have reduced somewhat in the UK. So in, in the Muslim community, um, in the 2020-10 census, it was... Um, 46% of Muslims lived in the 10% most deprived boroughs in the country. Now it's, according to MCB analysis, they kindly shared with me, it's 10% of, uh, sorry, not 10%, it's um, 30%, 30%, so 46 right, okay. down to 30%. Now that's still three times the average, of course, which is very problematic. We're three times more likely to be in the poorest. It's an 10. improvement, especially at times when the whole country is going through a cost of living crisis. And, and so I think, you know, those sorts of trends make it suddenly an opportunity for Muslims to look inward and say, look, um, you know, one of the points I, I make is Muslims will say, look, I belong to Britain. This is my country. Um, and to what extent am I responsible for the problems of this country and not just thinking about, I mean, it's important for us to think about the this travails of people suffering. I mean, we've witnessed Egypt and Tur um, sorry, Turkey and uh, Syria recently going through a horrendous uh, earthquake and they literally had another earthquake yesterday um, and I think we should very actively be trying to support those sorts of institutions but or, or those sorts of crises but one of the points that I make in the report is if Muslims in the UK think strategically they'll recognize if they develop the wherewithal to um, try and influence the policy decisions made by the government they'll recognize that as much money as we're sending abroad far more than that is being slashed from our international aid budgets by government policy and it's worse than neutralizing the efforts that we're making so i, I do think that we need to have this multi-pronged approach and because we've reached a certain critical mass in terms of our population because um you know as a result of efforts like um dr Mohammed al bulbari uh, people like neil who have really spearheaded excellent initiatives through citizens uk uh, that have brought in the Muslim community to think strategically in these ways. We're starting to think, actually, let's not think in very simplistic terms of, okay, I've got some money in my pocket, I'm going to give it to charity, so it goes to Turkey. I'm also going to think about, okay, I've got some money in my pocket, let me fund this sort of policy um, research so that they publish something that will then have an uh, impact on our FCO or whatever, um, DCMS, uh, so that those sorts of initiatives are supported by the strength of the government. We all pay our taxes. It's quite interesting. I mean, obviously, as uh, as, a, as a society, as a rich society, where we're going through a phase defined by a number of uh, of landmark events, including Brexit, for instance. Obviously, the the political turmoil that we find ourselves in with with everyone else, the cost of living crisis, um, which has hit Britain far worse than and many other places, and you know. uh, obviously the ongoing wars in, in Ukraine, as well as uh, Syria and, and various other countries of, of, of Arab and, and, and Muslim origin. Um, the question is, how much of all of this actually impacts not only the, the performance, but the, the makeup of, of this civil society, as you call it, uh, how much of it uh, I mean, for instance, we talked about which sectors are a little bit lacking in, in need, um, you know, a more positive and uh, and driven uh, contribution from the from the Muslim community. Um, but I look across the board, and knowing Europe as well as I do, Britain does stand out in terms of you find Muslims virtually everywhere, wherever you go whether you're looking at the media, at the arts, whether you're looking at drama, whether you're looking at sports, whether you're looking at politics, finance, Muslims are everywhere. But how much of this is 
sort of a, the, the the trajectories upward and how much of it is incidental simply because of, of events, whether local or international? I was just going to say, I've been reading the paper on the way here. It looks like Anasawa could be the next uh, leader of the Scottish National Party. Uh, he has a great uh, Scottish accent. Anasawa? Uh, 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 Hamza Youssef. Sorry, Hamza Youssef, yes. Well, Anasawa still is significant. He's, he's the head of the Labour, is, Scottish Labour. Exactly, yes. So uh, that's uh, fantastic. And Scotland is leading the way, really. Uh, with that development. Remarkable, actually. Uh, the, uh, I was just going to pick up what my friend was saying, really, about uh, to, so to praise the Muslim community for um, pretty well anywhere you see homeless people being fed. It's a group of mostly Muslim women doing it late around London here and, and doing it regularly in an organized way with hot soup and so on. But how many of them think about why are these people homeless? How many get involved in homeless action groups, not homeless action groups, housing action groups? Because there has to be a solution. Think it was um, Mahatma Gandhi who talked about a village where uh, bodies, dead bodies, kept coming down the stream and the villagers pulled them out. Some weren't dead. They looked after them and put them in hospital and so on. And one day, the head of the village said, I'm going up the river to see why these people are coming back um, dead and bruised and and of course that's the point we have to do both things and the Muslim community is very good at it but nervous I think nervous about standing up and saying this is not right this is not right according to teachings of uh, Islam but it's not right for social justice that people should not have a home uh, the other tremendous work is done of course overseas and, and I don't know that much, and by fall over, Muslim uh, <clears throat> aid organizations and Islamic Relief is doing a great job in Turkey and Syria at the moment. What we don't see is Muslims saying, okay, we're going to help the refugees, not by feeding them, but by having them in our homes, by um, community sponsorship is, is an opportunity, particularly since most of the refugees that are coming here are Muslim, of course. Uh, and it's a little bee in my bonnet, or it's a big bee in my bonnet, that I've tried very hard to get Muslim groups to sponsor and welcome refugees. And they do, they provide the money, they find the food. But actually, going that extra step has proved difficult for all sorts of practical reasons. But I think the more the Muslim community can lead, because it's not, you know, the, the Britain is fine but a lot of people are very lethargic and don't want to do anything and blame everyone else and it's the Tories it's the Labour and so on uh, which is doesn't change anything if we just sit and chatter it's much more in fact there's massive evidence that the people that change things are the people who get up and say this cannot happen we're throughout history it's leadership that matters uh, and it's courage that matters. Aristotle said the most important value, I dispute that with your brother a bit, uh, is that of courage in people. If you're not courageous, then you're not prepared to take anybody on. You can have wonderful ideas and be very generous and thoughtful and holy person. But courage says, here I stand and I will go no further along this. Neil, do, do you see this as slightly problematic when we're uh, discussing uh, British Muslim community or British Muslim civil society in terms that we might be, I don't know, uh, sort of pushing slightly inadvertently towards a little bit of isolationism, uh, probably a little bit of exceptionalism. Um, is, is that at all, you know, a possibility? Is that at all one of the questions that we we might need to ask ourselves? I mean, that's, that's why the report was called the missing muslims it's not and but i'm not saying it's it's a it's nothing to do with islam it's to do with racism islamophobia and all that and if i was a muslim and i have to try six times harder than anyone else particularly a muslim woman to get a job i'd say i'm but there's nothing wrong with me i go to i've been to university i've got a degree uh but still i can't get the job in fact i can't even get shortlisted there were some practical um proposals in the missing, missing muslims report as there are in the other report which was uh, the business community had some responsibility in introducing a nameless um, application forms yeah. so you don't see the name of the person you see their skills and what they've done before um, a Clifford Chance I know is one of the companies that does do that it's it's 
limited because ultimately you've got to see the name of the person. I know you've got to meet with them, but they can't get a foot in the door. It says, oh, this is an Arabic name. Put it I in think, I think one, one journalist actually did a did sort of an experiment. They've had a few, uh, actually. applied uh, to, um, to, the, to the same companies um, using a, an absolute yeah. English name and then using a non-English yeah. Muslim name. And um, he got rejected on every single application happens, yes. because of the Muslim name. Which is why, to your point, is well made. Is why it's, I think the Muslim community is more, more nervous about standing up and shouting. But at the same time, if I understood another angle of what you're talking about, is the fact that when we speak about British Muslim civil society as a separate entity, are we self? Isolating is that a concern as oh, well? That, that probably yes. Very. Right, I right. mean, I, I the thing that I I'm I'm trying to understand here is I mean we for years I I know I have for years have been advocating for for Muslims to integrate positively to become part of society to enter into all facets of life and the such and I have to say I've had my reservations re concerning the uh, the uh, the sector of Muslim schools for instance because my concern was we don't want students to feel as though they are isolated or distant or exclusive from the rest of society the the question is this I mean does this sort of and this is I mean that? I would hope it does quite the opposite right mm -hmm. I mean this is the ethos of um, reports like the missing Muslims report that uh, and and I follow in those footsteps that we're trying to encourage Muslim communities to think of themselves as uh, you know direct and meaningful contributors to British society. So they are uh, you know a Muslim civil society, but they're a British Muslim civil society, and it's about contribution to society as a whole. And what's really um, sort of in a sense very heartwarming, going to all of these uh, focus groups and speaking to a lot of young people as well. And seeing how much they internalize that sort of an ethos that I'm really doing this because I think I have a duty to contribute to society. And it's not, you know, they do recognize, look, as a Muslim, I do have a duty to try and help my immediate neighborhood where there will be lots of Muslims. But there's nothing exclusive about that. You know, I'm not doing that because I think uh, Muslims are really the only people that I'm interested in. No, actually supporting everyone is going to raise the level of society as a whole. So that was a consistent refrain from, I mean, I, I heard it a lot from young people and I heard it from uh, the older people in the kind of as a default uh, approach. I wanted to just reiterate um, this point that Neil's making, which is thinking systemically about problems, which is, um, I think, something which there still is a, a lack of. And it requires a certain degree of reflection about um, issues at more than a surface level. Very often in our community, we still diagnose problems at the surface level. We try and address the symptoms, but not think about the cause. And you know that's something which I hope that I uh, um, you know, contribute to thinking about at least uh, a bit more reflexively on the part of the community. But I do think that that is an area of weakness. Um, sometimes it's like it's about thinking. Let's find a you know problem that will solve. Uh, the Muslim issue here. Um, one example that a, um, one of a, 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 an academic colleague um, remarked about was student loans. So in this country, when I was a student, they were minuscule. Um, the cost of going to university were minuscule, and then suddenly they were, you know, sent uh, through the stratosphere. And Muslims are thinking about how can we make halal student loans. And I'm for me the problem is I I have a couple of uh, very young children and I think about you know do I even want them to go to university in this country and be saddled with fifty thousand pounds of debt at, at current rates at the, at the, day they graduate. At the point that we, in which they graduate um, I don't think that that's fair at all to um, you know that's not a fair thing to do to my own children um, I don't think we're helping um, by sort of just thinking at a surface level and saying, let's get something which is halal certified, rather than thinking about, well, let's think about the harm that those sorts of policies do to young people across the board who also are going to struggle, you know, to raise a deposit on a home and, and, and all the rest of it. You mentioned London has one of the most, you know, difficult housing circumstances for the last couple of years and, and going back for a while. So um, those are problems which Muslims who make up 15% of London's, um, and this is not a London-centric, very deliberately not a London-centric report. Um, there are Muslims in other parts of the country, who, but 
when it comes to housing, uh, London is probably one of the worst markets in the country. And Muslims make up 15% of the population. They're a particularly young demographic. How are they supposed to survive in that sort of situation unless but, there know, are systemic this, this changes? Point, this point is quite fascinating because uh, I think it uh, sort of fits with the uh, sort of polluted river theory that um, you know there's a the, the, you know you're you're at the banks of a of a river that's polluted at the very top by a chemical factory or whatever. Um, uh, you, you can't just try to get your bit of the river to be you know non-polluted. You have to clean up the the river entirely. So. I mean, the examples that you're giving, I mean, the student loan, health service, health service, which is very, very important, especially for um, for Muslim families who, you know, loathe the idea or the concept of putting their parents up in residential care homes or the such, um, is, is extremely important. Education. I mean, we're talking now about a sector where Muslims have incredible concerns for, for a variety of reasons. So, and, and this brings me to, to the question is, you know, is it, um, is it uh, acceptable? Is it even fair that m the Muslim community says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not concerned about anyone else right now. I want the, the sector that I wish to engage with to be of this, 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 and, you know, criteria, and I don't care about the rest. Is this firstly possible and secondly is it even fair and does it fit with the values of a muslim i mean this this is part of the question that 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 uh, annoys me often when i'm in discussion with with various muslim organizations of various because i feel that there is this sort of sense of exclusivity that this is something that i care about and that, you know i need to do this for myself and my kids right now well my thought is listen if the air is polluted it's going to pollute everyone it doesn't really matter you know whether you're a muslim or a non-muslim you're going to suffer as a result and therefore you need to clean the air is that fair is that even reasonable and probable well, it's not specific to the muslim community though and that if there is an attitude of i'll just plow on and ignore my neighbor that's why faith is so important I mean, all faiths uh, if you read any of the books are uh, indicate that we, jesus says as a christian myself you have to love your neighbor as yourself which means you, you need to develop yourself but uh, so it's not a selfish thing but equally you've got to love the neighbor equally prophet muhammad peace be upon him did also say as i was taught by great leaders like yourselves in a way and dr barry uh, that when asked where who is the leaders he said it's the 40 people to the right left of you and 40 people to the right uh, and then when pressed well who weren't really in my leader it's the people nearest you and i would use that as an argument for my brexit as a terrible idea i'm sorry to suddenly <laughs> go into that and I hope yeah. that doesn't offend anybody but basically abandoning our neighbors in europe makes no sense in human terms in my opinion maybe in economic terms it does but it doesn't look like it has done it doesn't, it doesn't uh, no. look like it doesn't unfortunately so uh, that's as i say but that's why faith is so important so we must hang on to our faith as specific faiths and the teachings of the founders of those faiths are so important because they do get to the they get to the point love your neighbor who and then muhammad never said love your muslim neighbor he said love the neighbor and jesus never said love the christian neighbor. it's an incredible foundation for a, for a real society don't you think absolutely it's almost all we need i mean i would uh, venture to say that actually this is the the crucial role that faith has in a secular society mm. because in a if in a sort of unremitting secularist ethos on what basis do you help other people Mm -hmm. If, you know, our sort of capitalist norms say that actually greed is good and you should serve your self-interests and the invisible hand will do its job. Mm -hmm. Well, in reality, we are living the consequences of that and it's austerity for the poor mm -hmm. and, you know, absurd profits for the super rich. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, you know, this is another regard in which um, the values of faith really need to inform. Uh, British Muslim civil society needs to get out into the wider society and this is an opening gambit to do something like that yeah. i mean we have to have these on a regular basis mm. the missing muslims report was basically saying the same thing that we need to um in your case one of the messages that i took away is that society needs to recognize the barriers they're putting up to muslims yes. and i think that that's you know still something which is very valid and, and true and i wanted to ask you actually about that like how do we follow up on these things? What's your experience been? But also that 
Muslims now can grasp the nettle themselves, take the bull by the horns, as it were, and try and think, you know, what can we actually do at our end to increase our own agency, to have increase our own footprint on bringing our values, yeah. our positive um, civic-minded values into wider society and make these things what it means to be British. All this raises so many questions. I mean, as, as you were talking just now, um, something came to mind that part of the problem that British Muslims speak of, and you can travel across the country and uh, you'll find this comes up time and again, in that the problem that British Muslims have uh, whilst healthy in numbers, healthy in terms of their diversity in the sectors of society that they occupy, even in terms of their relations with their neighbors. Most would say that those are quite positive as well. But the problem that they, that they constantly speak about is the lack of political leadership. Now, once again, one of the questions I would ask back in retort is, well, um, do we need a Muslim political leadership? But reading in your report, there seems to be also that area as well mentioned. Um, especially, for instance, that you have uh, two, well, one MP and one uh, member of the House of Lords who have opened uh, the, the report. So the question is how important important is political leadership for the Muslim civil society? So uh, I am going to come back and ask Neil about how we follow up these things. So hopefully uh, th that can be a follow-up uh, to this particular comment. But I, I happen to think that... Um, so we very often celebrate that we've got a significant number of Muslim parliamentarians in this country. Um, and I, I don't disagree with that, although um, I think we can also recognize that some of them aren't particularly exemplary when it comes to uh, standing up for um, whether it's the Muslim community or the needs of the dispossessed in society. But at the same time, if you do the maths and look at 6.5% of the population being Muslim, I think we have about half as many um, sort of uh, parliamentarians as would be uh, uh, MPs as would represent the proportion of Muslims in this country. So we, we're, you know, we're a sizable community. So obviously there are going to be some Muslim MPs, but we've got a long way to go. I, we're a democracy. Is that important? I think so. We're a democracy. We need uh, representation at every level. Um, and, you know, this is, it's through these sorts of conversations that we, it, it's through information asymmetries, to use a bit of a technical term, that Muslims get lost out in a lot of public discourse. And by having our representatives there, by having our reports published um, and feeding into that civic conversation, um, we can hopefully uh, do a lot better. I think it is important. That's my personal take on that. But I also, I mean, just to go back to Neil on this, that you know, I think this is, it's important for us to keep on writing these sorts of reports and keep on having these conversations within our communities. Um, but how do you gain traction uh, in the policy realm? How do you get people who uh, have the levers of power at their disposal, especially in contexts where we've shifted so dramatically to the right in this country, um, particularly since Brexit, um, that uh, it, it's become quite inhospitable um, for a lot of people who are maybe ethnic minorities. Um, and this is a point that you were making very strongly in the recommendations of the Missing Muslims Report. And, you know, I've made similar recommendations off the back of that. But for me, the question is, what do we, what do we have to do now to make sure that this stuff isn't just forgotten and left on a bookshelf somewhere? Well, uh, I was just thinking it was very helpful to have this uh, opportunity. So I reread the uh, Missing Muslims Report, and I remember we did make lots of recommendations to civil society because that's who it was for. We did make recommendations because we was not, actually not a, a panel of Muslims. We purposely had um, Jewish commissioners and um, secular commissioners and so on uh, who all um, – wanted the Muslim community to, to to participate, of course. That was what it was all about. There were uh, two particular um, requests of government we put in. We didn't want lots of requests to government because it is contrary to what we're trying to say, which is not all about government. However, 
the uh, government, there were two things that weren't, hadn't happened at the time, and frankly, they've, they've still never happened. So you could say this report was just uh, gathering dust. Uh, the specific one was to recognize the Muslim Council of Britain. It didn't have to be MCB, but it had to be a Muslim organization, and to talk to them regularly. Particularly if there was an issue and, and violence took place somewhere, you've got to call on the, the most representative body that uh, to speak to. But this government has consistently failed to reach out to MCB or really... Exactly, exactly. It is really proud of not being... Even though some of the people in the government, of course, are Muslim and Tories are in, the case, in that case. Uh, the other thing we wanted them to do, was, which was the easier thing to do, which was recognise the definition of Islamophobia, which pretty well everybody else had recognised. You know, it maybe there's a word wrong and so on, but, but it, it was a principle. The easiest thing to say, yes, we recognize this, as we do the similar Jewish one. That was recognized immediately uh, when that came out a few years before we tried to get the recognition for um, Islamophobia acknowledged. But the point being, that's why we need more people in the parliament, I guess. And then it's lovely to see the Muslim women are well represented in parliament. So the more the merrier. But the more the merrier at district level, at council level and so on. Uh, but also, for thinking of young people, if they don't want to do that, then they must create their own um, campaign group uh, about some local issue. Very easy. It's not an easy thing to do, but in, frankly, that's the way you cut your teeth. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's a big issue about mould in housing, uh, and many people experience it and put up with it, but the child died. That gave us the uh, the uh, opportunity to say this has to stop, and there's lots of fuss about it now, and maybe it will stop. But basically, there's plenty for people to do. Uh, the other great thing about Islam, I have to say, because I'm a real follower of Islam, though a Christian, uh, is not drinking. I'm embarrassed in the city of London on a Friday night to see everybody out drinking. It must be hard if you're a Muslim to not go to that feast of alcohol. And I'm sure some say, okay, I'll just have one drink. But that, it's that pressure which is unfortunate because it's, you know, I know the, con the consequences of not going on a Friday night, if you want to be a good lawyer, are quite serious because you're seen as standoffish and so on. On the other hand, it gives you plenty of time. That's the point. Plenty of time to put together your action team to go out and show the people drinking that actually you can carry on drinking, but I'm going to change the world. Is a it gives so, you plenty of time in more than one sense because it will give you a longer life as well. Well, exactly. That's right. Um, a friend of mine who went to the World Cup in Qatar. Oh, yes. Um, and uh, he came back and one of the things he said, he said, listen, you know, for, for about 32 years, I've been working alongside Muslims. My uh, One of my neighbors is a Muslim. <laughs> he said, but it took uh, five days in Qatar to realize how it's very, very possible to live in an alcohol-free situation, have fun, enjoy yourselves and enjoy, um, you know, the company of other people. He said it just took five days, you know, rather than 32 years. It's, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the report was uh, commissioned by, was it, by the APPG on British Muslims? It was done in, with their support. With their but support, it was, right. Um, so, yeah. Tell me a little bit about the APPG on British Muslims, because most people, and I include myself here, would recognize the APPG on British Muslims as being the body that um, produced the official ident uh, definition of Islamophobia which in itself uh, created a, a bit of a discussion. But like Neil said, I mean, a word here, a word there. But what else does the APPG on British Muslims do? So, the, I mean, APPGs are interesting institutions. And I mean, Neil will have more experience with them than I have, actually. But, um, you know, all party parliamentary groups are kind of like societies for um, sort of uh, parliamentarians in the way that you have societies at university. Yeah. Um, you know, certain people, uh, I think you need a minimum of uh, five parliamentarians. I might be wrong. That It might be even lower than that. Um, and someone comes to them and says, you know, we want to have a discussion of this sort of a theme or this sort of a topic. Um, are you interested in sort of being the um, chair or co-chair or treasurer, etc., of something like that? And it's usually from outside funds. And so um, it'll be typically charities. It actually was scrutinized recently by Sky News. Um, I think in a way it's very healthy. 
Um, and uh, because we need to have as open democracy as possible. And sometimes APPGs could be misused as well in that sense. So the APPG on British Muslims is just a series of, we were one uh, very uh, gratified to have um, Nasha MP and Baroness Saida Warsi, who are both co-chairs. Um, Steve Baker was very generous in that he came and attended the entire launch. Right. Who's the chair of the uh, the, APPG? The co-chair right now is um, uh, Nasha MP. Um, and Baroness Saida Warsi is, uh, I think she is the treasurer. So she's the treasurer. Oh, she she's the vice chair, Nasha. Um, and the chair, you caught me a little. <laughs> I mean, I'm I, because sure I'm trying to is. think who is who is the chair of the APPG on British Muslims. I really don't know. I think I'll need to do a little bit of search on that. But 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 regarding, I think Steve I mean, Baker may be. Um, but yeah, what does it do? I mean, what does it do for me as a British Muslim? What does it do? So the APPGs, and I, I think, I mean, this uh, writing of this report gave me an experience which demonstrated to me that actually we need to engage those spaces as well. They often get neglected and it doesn't need to happen all the time. Not massive amounts of resources need to be put in. But if we do have the occasional report which we can present there, we had uh, roughly 10 to 12 parliamentarians attend. The father of the house gave the opening speech. Um, Steve Baker, the uh, DCMS sort of shadow um, secretary, um, and you know a whole host of parliamentarians. Um, you know it, it puts our message on their map, yeah. and and it was really um, an important thing to do for them to be. Clearly, some of them had read it very carefully, and were quoting you know from a, from the footnotes in some instances, talking about like the 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 value of this. We also actually had um, conversations with. Um, sort of a certain Labour Party uh, outreach officers who were saying that we were going to pass on a summary of some of these findings to mm -hmm. the shadow cabinet, which is very important at this point in time because they're probably going to be in power in a, uh, a year and a half's time. And so um, I think that uh, APPGs, in my estimation, in my limited experience with them, are these wonderful opportunities where if you know an MP who is uh, affiliated with the um, uh, APPG on British Muslims, someone like Naz Shah or Saida Warsi, who both of whom are very committed to the well-being of the Muslim community and have really demonstrated that through years of um, effort, um, then uh, you know we can take issues where we're going we're going to formalize uh, some kind of report or we're going to talk about something and bring it into the spotlight in a parliamentary discussion. But that's only one step in a lot of steps to trying to influence the way in which we are governed. And I think it behoves all um, people involved in a democracy to think about, you know, what can we do to improve our democracy and how can we give our input? I think um, Neil already indicated that doing this at a local level is perhaps even more important than at central government because the Westminster bubble is not really how our how our democracy should operate that's once should be a small component of it and power is unfortunately far too centralized sometimes in these institutions we need to have devo uh, you know i'm a great believer in devolution but we need to have devolved powers in local councils and we need to have muslims working in local councils and they can achieve huge amounts i think you know tower hamlets is a fantastic example of that but at the same time uh Osama, i i we can also argue that it's extremely difficult for a Muslim candidate to come through. Yes. Whether it be in terms of the mainstream political parties, whether <laughs> it be in exception. terms of councils. Only recently, only recently, we've had the spectacle of the elected president of the NUS, of the National Union of Students, sacked and investigated and then sacked based on her opinions expressed on Facebook or Twitter Ten years ago, I got the impression she was sacked and then investigated. Oh, or probably yeah. that, or probably that. And it is as though this keeps proving to us how arduous it is, how difficult it is for a Muslim man or woman to come through the ranks and to actually achieve their rightful positions. I mean, this particular lady was elected by a landslide victory um, as president of the NUS, yet she didn't spend a single day probably in office, simply because she was investigating with the word go. This is truly a problem. Um, well, I agree. I think you've got to be four times stronger or more focused if you're a Muslim in Britain. Not obviously in, in all countries, but certainly in Britain, you have to struggle to 
override the Islamophobia that is, exists and the stereotyping that exists. But the, those that do, it is massively worth it because then they become a role model for the younger generation, a role model, frankly, for participating in, they are, in their doing. And we've just talked about two guys in Scotland who are doing pretty well. And You've both, I, I believe, stood um, for sort of constituencies uh, at some point in the past, yes. right? Yes, yeah. some of our London boroughs, of course, uh, there is there is good good smattering of councillors. That, uh... But you see, the thing is, I mean, uh, Neil, uh, let's be honest. I mean, even uh, um, Hamza Youssef, uh, he had to say when it comes to um, um, equal marriages, um, he said that regardless of my faith. And what caught my attention was, why did he need to say this? Why did he need to say, regardless of my faith, why is it so difficult for a Muslim? And I'm going to say a Muslim, or but I, I'm sure that this happens hate, also. You know, everyone. This, this happens across the board for a Christian, for instance, a Catholic or a Jew or a Hindu or the such. But why is it that um, someone who wishes to attain the highest office um, needs to sort of marginalize or sideline their faith or their principles or their belief in order to to, to get to that position. Surely that's not for the benefit be the of society. It, does, it doesn't come with the job, effectively. <laughs> yeah. I think, it, yeah, hopefully, it's because I am a Muslim, I want to do this. I do think Islam has a problem with same-sex and LGBT people. That's the, that's my, the only blip on the horizon is the failure to recognize what everyone else recognizes is that homosexuality has been with us, it's been with us forever, uh, and we have to get over it almost. Uh, so I, I, I noticed that Putihi had said that this morning, and of course the evangelical Christian lady. Uh, yes, Kate Forbes, I think. That's uh, right. Uh, suddenly her support has collapsed, and she's lost people by saying she couldn't agree with it. But does that mean that we need to, if there's something I believe so dearly, does that mean that I have to forego any political um, or leadership aspiration no. as a result? No, not at all, I don't think. That, but, but you have to stand on what you believe in. And I, I sort of like the way he put it, which is faith. I, I'm a Muslim for pretty well everything else other than I disagree with the position of Islam, which is what, in a way, he's saying on LGBTQ issues. That doesn't mean to say there's anything wrong with him because he, to get a Muslim to run the Scottish National Party is fantastic. It is. I mean, it, this actually, uh, because I, I wear a theologian's hat as well, and, and it can become quite complicated from a theological sure. perspective because um, if something is sort of very clear-cut as a prohibition in the Quran, um, and then you come out and you say, well, actually, I accept all of the Quran, but not that bit, that technically places you outside of the faith because you're supposed to accept the entire Quran. Um, by the sort of testimony of the Quran itself. So, I mean, it. But my question, Osama, is that this is this a reflection on Hamza Yusuf? I mean, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm so. singling him yeah, out, but he, so. it's just an, yeah. one example out of many. But is this a reflection on him, or is this a reflection on society and where someone of faith finds him or herself within that society? vis-a-vis -vis their aspirations to lead. I, I have a very particular perspective on this. I mean, I can share it if, if that's, I mean, I'm not, it's, it's maybe somewhat idiosyncratic, but, you know, societies have norms. I happen to argue that, you know, secularism can be conceptualized as a, as a religion of, of a sort, which has certain value systems. Um, some might describe it as a civil religion, as some sociologists have. And so, you know, when tenets of different religions come to be at loggerheads, the dominant religious tradition in a society will set the template of what is or is not acceptable. So I think in these sorts of societies, we just have to, as Muslims and as someone who, you know, adheres to um, a Quranic theological paradigm, I would recognize that, you know, my perspective on gay marriage would not be welcome in the political sphere. Um, and I would have to make a case that, look, I mean, I don't know the language that someone like Hamza Yusuf used, but perhaps he used something like this, that regardless of my own personal faith commitments in these areas, which are, you know, in the context of this secular society, I can I will treat them in my, in public office as a personal right. okay. religious commitment. Yeah, that's, that's a fair, um, that's you know, a fair take. That's I will take. uphold the laws of this context. And scholars like, um, you know, people we admire have pointed to the Prophet Joseph in the Quran, who was a minister effectively or the treasurer 
in uh, an Egyptian sort of non-Muslim state. So I think, you know, there are ways in which those compromises, but I don't think personally that the language used should be a denial of what's in the Quran because I'm a Muslim. Mm. 